Section 9 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Businessmen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Businessmen by Albert Hubbard. Chapter 9, Part 1. Philip D. Armour. Anybody can cut prices, but it takes brains to make a better article. Philip D. Armour. Philip D. Armour was born on May 16, 1832, near the little village of Stockbridge, New York. He died at Chicago, January the 6th, 1901. The farm owned by his father was right on the line between Madison and Oneida counties. The boys used to make a scratch in the road and dare the boys from Madison to come across into Oneida. The Armour farm adjoined the land of the famous Oneida community, where was worked out one of the most famous social experiments ever attempted in the history of civilization. However, the Armour family constituted a little community of its own, and was never induced to abandon family life for the group. Yet, for John Humphrey Noyes, Danforth Armour, always had great respect, but he was philosopher enough to know that one generation would wind up the scheme, for the young would all desert, secrete millinery, and mate as men and young maidens have done since time began. Oneida is for those whose dream did not come true. Mine has, he said. The armors of Stockbridge traced a pedigree to Jean Armour of Eyre, brown as a berry, pink and twenty, sweet and thrifty, beloved of Bobby Burns. The father of Philip was Danforth Armour, and the father of Danforth Armour was James Armour, Puritan, who emigrated from the north of Ireland. James settled in Connecticut, and fortified his Scotch-Irish virtues with a goodly mixture of the New England genius for hard work, economy, and religion. His grandfather had fought side by side with Oliver Cromwell, and had gone into battle with that doughty hero, singing the songs of Zion. He was a Congregationalist by prenatal influence, and I need not here explain that the love of freedom found form in Congregationalism, a religious denomination without a Pope and without a Bishop, where one congregation was never dictated to nor ruled by any other. Each congregation was complete in itself, or was supposed to be. This love of liberty was the direct inheritance of James Armour. It descended to Danforth Armour, and by him was passed along to Philip Danforth Armour. All of these men had a very sturdy pride of ancestry, masked by modesty, which oft reiterated, Oh, pedigree is nothing, it all lies in the man. You do, or else you don't. To your quilting, girls, to your quilting. When Nancy Brooks was beloved by Danforth Armour, the fates were propitious. The first women school teachers in America evolved in Connecticut. Miss Brooks was a school teacher, the daughter of a farmer for whom Danforth Armour worked as hired man. Danforth was given to boasting a bit as to the part his ancestors had played as neighbours to Oliver Cromwell at the time and the only time when England was a republic. Miss Brooks did not like this kind of talk, 
and told the young man so straight at his red head. The Brooks family were Scotch too, but they had fought on the side of royalty. They were never rebels. They were true to the king. Exactly so. Now, there are two kinds of Scotch, the fair and the dark, the highland and the lowland, the aristocrats and the peasantry. Miss Brooks was dark, and she succeeded in convincing the freckled and sandy-haired man that he was of a race of rebels, also that the rule of the rebels was brief. Brief, my lord, as woman's love. Then they argued as to the alleged brevity of woman's love. Here they were getting on dangerous ground. Nature is a trickster, and she spread her net, and caught the highland maid and the lowland laddie, and bound them with green withies, as is her wont. So they were married by the congregational minister, and for a wedding tour fared forth westward to fame and fortune. Out west then meant York State, and the far west was Ohio. They reached Oneida County, New York, and stopped for a few days, ere they pushed on to the frontier. The site was beautiful, the location favourable, and the farmer at whose house they were making their stay was restless and wanted to sell out. That night the young couple talked it over. They had a few hundred dollars saved, sewed in a belt and in a dress bodice. They got the money out and recounted it. In the morning they told their host how much money they had and offered to give him all of this money for his farm. He was to leave them a yoke of oxen, a cow, a pig and six sheep. He accepted the offer. The money was paid, the deed made out and the man vacated, leaving the bride and groom in possession. So here they lived their lives. Here they worked, planned, aspired and prospered. Here too their children were born and raised and down at the little village cemetery they sleep side by side. In life they were never separated, and in death they are not divided. The first requisite in education, said Herbert Spencer, is that man shall be a good animal. Philip D. Armour fulfilled the requirements. He was dowered with a vital power that fed his restless brain, and made him a regular dynamo of energy for sixty-nine years, and with a little care at the last, should have run for ninety years, with never a hot-box. He used to say, if my ancestors had been selected for me by Greek philosophers, specialists in heredity, they could not have done better. I cannot imagine a better woman than my mother. My childhood was ideal. God did not overlook me. Well did this happy, exuberant, healthy man say that his parentage and childhood environment were ideal. Here was a family of six boys and three girls, brought up on a beautiful hillside farm, amid as peaceful and lovely a landscape as ever the sun shone upon. Down across the creek there were a hundred acres of bottom land that always laughed to harvest under the skilful management of Danforth Armour. Yet the market for surplus products was distant, so luxury and leisure were out of the question. And yet work wasn't drudgery. Woods, hills, running streams, the sawmill and the gristmill, the path across the meadow, the open road, the miracle of the seasons, the sugar bush, the freshet that carried away the bridge, the first spring flowers peeping from beneath the snow 
on the south side of rotting logs, the trees bursting into leaf, the hills white with blossoms of wild cherry and hawthorn, the Saturday afternoon when the boys could fish, the old swimming hole, the bathing of the little ones in the creek, the growing crops in the bottom land, bee trees and wild honey, coon hunts by moonlight, the tracks of deer down by the salt lick, bears in the green corn, harvest time, hog killing days, frost upon the pumpkin and fodder in the shock, wild turkeys in the clearing, revival meetings, spelling bees, debates at the schoolhouse, school at the log schoolhouse in Stockbridge, barn raisings, dances in the new barn, quilting bees, steers to break, colts to ride, apple butter, soft soap, pickled pig's feet, smoked hams, side meat, shelled walnuts, coonskins on the barn door, winter and the first fall of snow, boots to grease, harness to mend, backlogs, hickory nuts, cider, a few books and all the other wonderful and enchanting things that a country life, not too isolated, brings to the boys and girls born where the rain makes musical patter on the roof and the hand of a loving mother tucks you in at night. Here was a mother who gave to the world six sons, five of whom grew to an honoured manhood and proved themselves men of power. One of the girls, Marietta, was a woman of extraordinary personality, as picturesquely heroic as Philip Armour himself. This mother never had a servant girl, a laundress or a dressmaker. The manicure and the beauty doctor were still in the matrix of time, as yet unguessed. On Sunday there was a full wagon load of armors, big and little, to go to the congregational church at Stockbridge. Let us hope the wagon was yellow and the horses grey. Do not imagine that a family like this is lonely. There is constant work, the day is packed with duties, and night comes with its grateful rest. There is no time to be either bad or unhappy, nor is there leisure to reflect on your virtues. No one line of thought receives enough attention to disturb the balance of things. To be so busy that you forget it is very fortunate. The child brought up with a happy proportion of play and responsibility, of work and freedom, of love and discipline, has surely not been overlooked by providence. The problem of education is a problem only to the superlatively wise and the tremendously great. To plain people, life is no problem. Things become complex only when we worry over them. So the recipe for educating children is this. Educate yourself. When Philip D. Armour was 19, the home nest seemed crowded. The younger brothers were coming along to do the work, and the absence of one will be one less to feed, he said to his mother. The gold fields of California were calling. This mother was too sensible and loving to allow her boy to run away. If he was going, he should go with her blessing. She got together a hundred dollars in cash. With this and a pack on his back, Philip started on foot for the land of El Dorado. Four men were in the party, all from Oneida County. He walked all the way and arrived on schedule after a six-month journey. 
Philip was the only one in the party who did not grow sick nor weary. One died, two turned back, but Philip trudged on with the procession that seemed to increase as it neared the goldfields. Arriving in California, this very sensible country boy figured it out that mining was a gamble. A very few grew rich, but the many were desperately poor. Most of those who got a little money ahead spent it in prospecting for bigger fines and soon were again penniless. He decided that he would not bet on anything but his own ability. Instead of digging for gold, he set to work digging ditches for men who had mines but no water. This making ditches was plain labour, without excitement, chance or glamour. You knew beforehand just how much you would make. Philip was strong and patient. He could work from sunrise to sunset. He was paid five dollars a day. Then he took contracts to dig ditches, and sometimes he made ten dollars a day. Parties who were busted and wished to borrow were offered a job. He set them to work and paid them for what they did, and no more. It was all a question of mathematics. In five years, Philip Armour had saved eight thousand dollars. It was enough to buy the best farm in Oneida County, and this was all he wanted. There was a girl back there who had taunted him and dared him to go away and make his fortune. They parted in a tiff. That's the way she got rid of him. There was another man in the case, but Philip was too innocent to know this. The peaceful hills of New York lured and beckoned. He responded to the call and started back home. In half the time it took to go, he had arrived. But alas, the hills had shrunken. The mighty stream that once ran through Stockbridge was but a rill. And the girl, the girl had married another, a worthy horse doctor. Philip called on her. She was yellow and tired and had two fine babies. She was glad to see her old friend Philip, but the past was as dead to her as the present. In her hand-grasp there was no thrill. She had given him a big chase, and soon his sadness made way for gratitude in that she had married the horse-doctor. He gave them his blessing. Philip looked around at farms. Several were for sale, but none suited him. On the way back from California, he had travelled by way of the Great Lakes and stopped two days at Milwaukee. It was a fine city, a growing place, the gateway of the West and the marketplace where the vessels loaded for the east. Milwaukee had one rival, Chicago, 85 miles south. Chicago, however, was on low, flat, marshy ground. It would always be a city, of course, because it was the end of navigation, but Milwaukee would feed and stock the folks who were westward bound. So to Milwaukee went Philip Armour, resolved there to stake his fortune in trade. Opportunity offered, and he joined with Fred B. Miles on March 1st, 1859, in the produce and commission business. Each man put in $500. The business prospered. One of the great products in demand was smoked and pickled meats. At that time, farmers salted and smoked hams and brought them to town, with furs, pelts, and bags of wheat. All the tide of humanity that streamed into Milwaukee, westward bound, bought smoked or pickled meats, something that would keep, 
and be always handy. These were winter-packed. The largest packer was John Plankenton, who was a success. John was knowing, and he made Phil Armour his junior partner, as Plankenton and Armour. Then business sizzled. They were at the plant at four o'clock in the morning. They discovered how to make a hog yield four hams. Our soldiers needed the hams and the barrelled pork, so shortly more hogs came to market. The war's end found the new firm much stronger and well stocked with large orders for mess pork, sold for future delivery at wartime prices, which contract they filled at a much lower cost and to their financial satisfaction. Their guesser was good and they prospered. Meantime, the city of Chicago grew faster than Milwaukee. There was a rich country south of Chicago as well as west, and of this Philip Armour had never really thought. Chicago was a better market for pickled pork and corned beef than Milwaukee, as more boats fitted out there, and more emigrants were landing on their way to take up government land. One of Mr. Armour's brothers, Joe, was a packer in Chicago. Another brother, H.O., was in the commission business there. Joe's health, it seems, was pretty bad, so in 1870 Philip Armour came to Chicago, and shortly the house of Armour and Company came into being, H.O. Armour going to New York to look after Eastern trade and financing. In those days branch houses were unknown, and packing-house products were handled by jobbers. The father of the packing-house industry was Philip Danforth Armour. The business of the packing-house industry is to gather up the food products of America and distribute them to the world. Let the fact here be stated that the world is better fed today than it ever has been since Herodotus sharpened his faber and began writing history, 450 years before Christ. In this matter of food, the danger lies in overeating and not in lack of provender. The business of Armour and Company is to buy from the producer and distribute to the consumer. So Armour and Company have to satisfy two parties, the producer and the consumer. Both being fairly treated have a perfect right to grumble. The buyer of things which nature forces the man to buy is usually a complainer, and he complains of the seller because he is near, just as a man kicks the cat and takes it out on his wife, or the mother scolds the children. To the farmers, Armour used to say with stunning truth, You get more for your produce today than you got before I showed up on the scene, and you get your money on the minute without haggle or question. I furnish you an instantaneous market. To the consumer, he said, I supply you with regularity and I give you quality at a price more advantageous to you than your local butcher can command. My profit lies in that which has always been thrown away. As for sanitation, go visit your village slaughterhouse and then come and see the way I do it. Upton Sinclair scored two big points on Packing Town and its boss ogre. They were these. First, the ogre hired men and paid them to kill animals. Second, these dead animals were distributed by the ogre and his minions, and the corpses eaten by men, women and children. It was a revolting revelation. It even shook the nerves of a president, one of the killingest men in the world, who, not finding enough things to kill in America, 
went to Africa to kill things. "'You live on the dead,' said the Eastern pundit, reproachfully, out of his yellow turban, to the American who had just ordered a ham sandwich. "'And you'll eat the living,' replied the American, as he handed a little hand microscope to the pundit and asked him to focus it upon his dinner of dried figs. The pundit looked at the figs through the glass, and behold, they were covered with crawling, wiggling, wriggling, living life. And then did the man from the east throw the microscope out of the window and say, Now there are no bugs on these figs. That which we behold too closely is apt to be repulsive. Fix your vision upon any of the various functions of life, and the whole thing becomes disgusting, especially so if we contemplate the details of existence in others. Personally, of course, we, ourselves, in thought and action, are sweet and wholesome, but the others, oh, ah, bah, phew, ouch, or words to that effect. Armour's remark about the village slaughterhouse was getting close to home, if bad meat was ever put out, it was from these secret places, managed by one or two men who did things in their own sweet way. Their work was not inspected. They themselves were the sole judges. There were not even employees to see and blackmail them if they failed to walk the chalk line. They bought up cattle, drove them in at night, and killed them. No effort was made to utilise the blood or offal, and this putrefying mass advertised itself for miles. Savage dogs and slaughterhouses go together, as all villagers know, and there were various good reasons why visitors didn't go to see the local butcher perform his pleasing obligations. The first slaughterhouses in Chicago were just like those in any village. They supplied the local market. At first the offal was simply flung out in a pile. Then, when neighbours complained... Holes were dug in the prairie and the by-product buried. About 1882, a decided change in methods occurred. The first thing done was to dry the blood, bone and meat scrap and sell this for fertiliser. Next came the scientific treatment of the waste for glues and other products. Chemists were given a hearing, patient and most courteous. One day Armour beckoned C. H. McDowell into his private office and said, I say, Mac, if a man calls who looks like a genius or a fool, wearing long hair, whiskers and spectacles, treat him gently. He's a German, and may have something in his head besides dandruff. McDowell is one of the big boys at Armour's. He was a stenographer, like my old Bryant and Stratton chum, Cortelieu, and in fact is very much such a man as Cortelieu. Mac is the head of the Armour Fertiliser Works and is distressed because he can't utilise the squeal. So much energy evaporating. It is his business to capitalise waste. It was the joke of the place that if a German chemist arrived, all business was paralysed until his secret was seized. Jena, Gottingen and Heidelberg became names to conjure with. Buttons were made from bones, glue from feet, combs and ornaments from horns, curled hair from tails, felt from wool, hair was cured for plaster, and the armour fertiliser works slowly became grounded and founded on a scientific basis, where reliable advice as to growing cotton, rice, yams, potatoes, 
roses or violets could be had. Meat is the farmer's product. This meat is consumed by the people. One half of our population are farmers, and all farmers raise cattle, sheep, poultry and hogs. Trade follows the line of least resistance, and the natural thing is for the local butcher to slaughter and supply his neighbourhood. There is only one reason why the people in East Aurora should buy meat of armour, as they occasionally do, and that is because armour supplies better meat at a lower price than we can produce it. If armour is higher in price than our local butcher, we buy of the local man. The local butcher fixes the price, not armour, and the local farmer fixes the price for the local butcher. Armour always and forever has to face this local competition. I am in partnership with the farmer, Philip Armour used to say. Their interests are mine, and their confidence and goodwill I must merit, or overgoes my calabash. The success of capital lies in ministering to the people, not in taking advantage of them, and every successful business house is built on the bedrock of reciprocity, mutuality and cooperation. That legal Latin maxim, let the buyer beware, is a legal fiction. It should read, let the seller beware, for he who is intent on selling the people a different article from what they want, or at a price beyond its value, will stay in trade about as long as that famous snowball will last in Biloxi. Besides being father of the packing-house industry, Philip D. Armour was a manufacturer of and a dealer in portable wisdom. His teeming brain took in raw suggestions and threw off the completed product in the form of epigrams, phrases, orphics, symbols. To have caught these crumbs of truth that fell from the rich man's table might have placed many a penny a liner beyond the reach of mental avarice. One man, indeed, swept up the crumbs into a book that is not half crumbly. The man is George Horace Lorimer, and his book is called Letters of a Self-Made Merchant to His Son. Lorimer was a department manager for Armour, and busied himself, it seems, a good deal of the time, in taking down disjecta, or the by-product of business. Armour was always sincere, but seldom serious. There is a lot of quiet fun yet among the Armour folks. When the big boys dine daily together, they always pass the persiflage. Lorimer showed me a bushel of notes with which he proposes some day to Boswellize his former chief. Incidentally, he requested me never to mention it, but secrets being to give away, I state the fact here, in order to help along a virtuous and hard-working young man, the son of the Reverend Dr. George C. Lorimer, a worthy Baptist preacher. Keep at it. Do not be discouraged, Melville. A preacher's son is usually an improvement on the sire, said Philip D. Armour to Melville Stone, who was born at Hudson, McLean County, Illinois, the son of a presiding elder. I'm not worrying, replied the genealogical Stone. You and I were both born in log houses, which puts us straight in line for the presidency. Right you are, Melville, for a log house is built on the earth and not in the clouds. Then this came to Armour, and he could not resist the temptation to fire it. Boys, all buildings that really endure are built from the ground up, never from the clouds down. End of section 9